Well, uh, we're going to be in uh, Colossians, and then chapter 3, and in a moment I'll tell you what page number that is. 1184. And uh, once you've found that, we'll pray. looking around, uh, there's not many of us here tonight, but um, we thank you for those that are. We thank you that we can come here freely to worship you and to give thanks to you, to hear your word preached. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us tonight by your Holy Spirit, that we may hear your word clearly and it might become written in our hearts even more. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to be concentrating on uh, Colossians uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Uh, tonight, and obviously uh, we're looking at the resurrection and what that means for us. Um, You know that I uh, like sailing, but I've never been a member of a sailing club, or a golf club, or a gym, come to that. Uh, Why not? Because I'm always afraid that I'm going to be told off by the club commodore, or whatever they're called. It seems to me that being a member of a sailing club, you need to uh, uh, keep all the rules, and I'm afraid that I would go off sailing with the wrong type of flag on top or go right around the boy when I should have gone left around the boy or should have said port and starboard instead of left and right just then. And I shall never win approval um, with anybody unless I know all the knots in the handbook and my kicker strap is correctly adjusted and they've been able to do that. Uh, and whether I've taken my turn on the rescue boat or, or hosing down the duck poo on the slipway. They're not called slipways for nothing, are they? It all seems like a bit of a hopeless strain, really, to win approval and to avoid being told off. One day, perhaps, I will join a sailing club and find out whether it really is like that. Is it like that? No, he says. (laughs) Thomas says it's not. Well, rather weirdly and bizarrely, some people within the Colossian church were trying to take their church into a sailing club. Or at least a twisted, uh, distorted version of of a sailing club that I have. You see, the Colossians wanted to change... They wanted to live better lives, and hands up here, who wants to live a better life? Yeah, a lot of you do, good. Well, you're just like the Colossians. The problem is that some of them thought that it was all a case of following the rules and trying to win the approval of the club commodore, whoever that might be. So in chapter 2 and verse 8, just look back a page, some of them, says Paul, were teaching hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world. What are the basic principles of this world? Well, follow the rules and you'll do okay. As my son Alex tried to convince me this week, get a good school report and your parents should give you a good gift. (laughs) Obey the regulations, verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And surely they think good things will come to them, real lasting change and just reward will be theirs too. In many ways, that seems like an easier form of Christianity. It would be much more straightforward, wouldn't it, sometimes, if our faith came with a concise, uh, written rule book, clearly explaining how to impress God. The problem with that, as Paul points out in verse 23, is such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual Indulgence. Do you see that? They lack any value 
in bringing about the change that the Colossians and indeed most of us here in this church wanted to experience in our lives. In other words, they're just wolves. They offer a false dawn, a false holiness, a resurrection that won't work. So, what's the answer? Well, the first thing we need to understand about the resurrection, I think, is that it is about relationship and not rules. Relationship and not rules. You see, you have to understand that we're not lone rangers in this world, trying to, uh, as individuals, trying to uh, make our own way in life and do the best we can. No, if we're Christians here, if we've accepted Christ as our saviour, then we've been given an unbreakable relationship with Christ. Sometimes people ask me, well, I'm related to uh, Trevor Huddleston, a well-known anti-apartheid campaigning bishop back in the sort of 50s and 60s. And I'm not, so far as I'm aware, uh, though he does look a bit like my dad. These days I'm more often asked whether I am related to Tom Huddleston, the uh, Tottenham footballer. And I'm not either, which is a shame, really, because they're better paid than bishops. But even if I was connected to these people in any way, actually being connected to Christ himself, being related to Christ himself, is a connection of a totally, totally different order. You see, chapter 1, verse 2, just look back at that, says, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ. 127 says, there's a great mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. So for Christians here, we are in Christ. But also Christ is in us. Is it Christ in us or we in Christ? Well, it's both. We're intimately tied into the same overlapping knot. So the resurrection here has three components that I want to talk about tonight, all related to this unbreakable relationship or union with Christ. So in uh, chapter 3, Verse 1, it says, you have been raised with Christ. Verse 3, you died with Christ. Verse 4, you will appear with Christ, with him in glory. So raised with Christ, died with Christ, and appearing with Christ in glory. Let's have a look at each one of these in a bit more detail. So firstly, we've been raised with Christ. Uh, Just go back again, chapter 2 and verse 12, you have been raised with him, through your faith and the power of God who raised him from the dead. Going back to chapter 3, verse 1 again, you have been raised for Christ. What does this all mean, we've been raised for Christ? Well, first of all, notice that it is God doing the raising. So it's a passive verb, isn't it? Somebody raised us, that's God. And we weren't alone, or Christ wasn't alone when he was raised. We have been raised for Christ. And in fact, God uses the same power on us to raise us than he does on Christ. In Philippians, uh, it uses the word power there, which in Greek sounds like a, a dunamis, or, or it's the word we get dynamite from, or dynamic. So God dynamically, spiritually raises the whole company of believers, that's you and us, you and me, up with Christ at the same time. Isn't that incredible? But what does that really mean for us now? Well, by raising Christ from the dead, what was, Christ, what was God doing? Well, God the Father, in effect, was saying that he approved of Christ's work of suffering and dying for our sins, that his work was completed, that Christ no longer had any need to remain dead. There is no penalty left uh, to pay for our sin. 
no more wrath for God to bear, no more guilt or liability for pun- to punishment. All have been completely paid for. No guilt remains. So in the resurrection, God was saying to Christ, you've done it. You've done it. Your work is complete. You're finished. Come home. Well, God raises us up with Christ at the same time. Then by virtue of our union with Christ, God's declaration of approval of Christ is also his declaration of approval to us. So when the Father in essence says to Christ, all the penalty of sins has been paid for, you've done your work, come home, he's saying to us, those of us who put our trust in Christ for salvation, he's saying the penalty of your, for your sins has been paid. I find you not guilty. You are righteous in my sight. The work is done. Come home. So just as the resurrection is proof that God's work is done by Christ, it's also proof that we have been justified in God's sight. And that's pretty exciting, isn't it? So we're no longer under rules. We are under relationship with the Lord Jesus with whom we have been raised. Chapter 1 and verse 13 says, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So it's not about rules, it's about relationship with Christ. Secondly, because we've been raised in Christ, we must already have died in Christ too. So chapter 2 and verse 11, we died to the sinful nature by putting it off. In verse 12, uh, we are buried with Christ in baptism. Chapter 2 and verse 20, uh, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. Sorry, chapter chapter 2 and verse 20, you died with Christ. And then back to chapter 3 and verse 3 again, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So we've been united with Christ in his death. I mean, we were dying anyway, weren't we, in, in, in our spiritual life because of our sins. Paul says we are dead in our sins, doesn't he? Uh, he says that in chapter 2 and verse 13. Uh, because we were trying to prove ourselves by that rule book. But that whole dead way of life, if you like, dies again when we're united with Christ in his death. So once we put our trust in Christ for salvation, chapter 2, verse 14 says, that rule book that stood opposed to us is nailed to the cross with Christ. And all our powers and authorities are disarmed because the evidence which has been collected against us is obliterated and taken away. So imagine you keep a diary, and in your diary you're absolutely honest about everything that you think and you do. All that teenage angst for your teenage years or the, uh, uh, the uh, I don't know, the, uh, the doubts and the worries of your uh, later years. And of course, reading that diary would be explosive, wouldn't it? If anyone discovered the diary and were to read it, how would you feel? You would take that diary, wouldn't you, and you would find the most secret, the best possible hiding place possible. And even then, you'd still worry that um, somebody would find it whilst you're out to work or out for the evening. And your wife or your husband or your mum or your dad uh, was digging around in the back of the cupboard one day and come across this uh, diary and decided to have a read. How much better that that diary is nailed to the cross with the rules you were trying but failing to keep. So when Christ died, he invites us to die all over again with him. Chapter 2 and verse 20, we are called to die with Christ to the basic principles of this world. So think back to the day of your conversion, if you uh, can think that way, if you think you have a day of conversion. Mine was about this time of year, in Easter, at 1982. That makes me feel old. 
Did anybody, I wonder on that day, hold a funeral for you? I mean, that's a bit remiss of them, wasn't it, really? Because in a sense, your old selves died on that day. Of course, it's a great cause of celebration, isn't it? Because we're starting a new life. But our old selves died with Christ as we begin this new life of relationship with him. It's a bit like getting married, I suppose. Not that I'm saying marriage is like death or anything like that. Uh, But it is a decision. It's a definite decision. We die to the single life, don't we? So there's no more planning holidays on our own without talking to somebody else. There's no more going out to dinner on our own with friends of the opposite sex. No choosing the gangster movie without even looking at the chick flicks. We're married now. We've died to the old single self. Verse 12, uh, chapter 2, even says, uh, we spiritually share a tomb with Christ. I mean, how, more, how much more intimate than can you get than that? Everything that was unholy about us died on that day, on the day we became Christian. But all of it was nailed to that cross with Christ. So we died with Christ, and we've been raised to new life, united with Christ. But Paul goes on to say this, doesn't he, in chapter 3? In verse 3, he says, Our new life is hidden in Christ. And you might well say, well, yes, actually, I understand that. Uh, I look around and I think about this unbreakable relationship with Christ, and we think, where is it? It's so well hidden, I can't actually find it. Indeed, as we look around us, just looking at outward appearances, it's hard to work out who are the Christians and who aren't. Which is probably quite a good thing, because if you're wearing sandals over your socks and smile Jesus loves you badges, then I would be severely worried. And many of us continue to struggle, don't we, day to day. It's difficult sometimes to see the resurrection power of Jesus in our lives, to see where it's all been used up, where has it all gone. There's an illustration I stole from somebody else. Um, it goes a bit like this. Imagine you've been a prisoner of war in Nazi Germany between 1940 and 1945. You've spent the last five years uh, trying to pass the time, looking forward to the next Red Cross food parcel and the letter from home, planning innocent activities to keep your spirits high, like, I don't know, planning the opera group or the, uh, the uh, concerts, painting workshops or digging tunnels or whatever you wanted to do. But all the time, of course, you're under guard, aren't you? You're held captive. And sometimes you're very badly treated. Come 1945, the Allied armies are advancing. One morning you wake up to discover that the guards have slipped out of the camp overnight and have disappeared. The front line has extended to beyond the location of your camp. But you're not back home yet, are you? You're still in the camp. Yes, under a new rule, things will be different. You've been set free, in a sense, from that terrible tyranny you've suffered. But for a time, you're still experiencing the same deprivations. The food hasn't improved. In fact, it may have got worse. The fleas still bite. But you're happy because you're safe. You're no longer held captive. The new government is on your side. And that's a bit like what it's like for us now. We have been raised with Christ, and yet we're still here on earth experiencing many of the same deprivations and difficulties in life that we suffered before. And yet our minds are set on something else completely. So the completeness of our new life does remain, in one sense, hidden. It's not entirely obvious to others, not even obvious to ourselves sometimes. For we access this treasure by faith, 
And yes, we do delight in the small progress that we make towards holiness, knowing that Christ will indeed complete the good work that he has begun in us. And yet, and for that, it is no less real. Because it's like a trident, it's, like, it's also hidden in the sense of being kept secure, like a chest or treasure. So our life is hidden in Christ, in God. This is that. Um, in verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God, what somebody called a double rampart, Christ and God, both protecting us, both protecting, keeping us secure. So concealed, yes, our lives concealed, but also secure. Uh, my, my mum still serves as an example to me. I mean, her, most of you know, I think her health is going downhill very fast. She's recently gone into a home. She can no longer care for herself. And in many ways, she's lost uh, a lot of her human dignity and independence. And yet she wears this almost permanent smile. It's the smile of a person whose heart really is hidden in Christ, I believe. And who knows that her life won't always be like this. Because we're not only raised to new life here on earth, but we're also raised to new life in heaven. So chapter 3 and verse 4, when Christ appears then you also will appear with him in glory. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that Christ is like the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He uses this agricultural metaphor to say that we will be like Christ. Just as the first fruits of the harvest or the taste of the ripening crop show what the rest of the harvest are going to taste like or be like, so Christ as the first fruit shows what our resurrection bodies will be like when in God's final harvest we are raised and finally brought into his presence. So that's a bit like the Allied soldiers finally turning up in that POW camp. The medical tour turn up. Everyone is de-loused. We're given additional rations, new clothes to put on, and finally we're put on that train back to England. On the quay side at Dover, uh, we, we are seen by our family and friends for the first time in five years. We've arrived home, revealed. So we are raised with Christ, we died with Christ, and we will be revealed with Christ in glory. And there'll be no more doubt. Our relationship with Christ will be plain to see. Everyone will see how strong, strongly we are united with Christ. So we said at the beginning we want to change, didn't we? And uh, with the Colossians, we face this choice, don't we? Do we go for the rules and the regulations leading to perhaps a false holiness? Or do we rely first and foremost on the power of this resurrection relationship? You see, if we decide to put the rules first, then what we can expect is an outbreak of judgmentalism. Because that's what you get when you get a group of people trying to follow a rule book, like in a sailing club. We make up our own failures by looking down on others who have even less of a clue than ourselves. Our identity becomes all about how we're doing against other people. So we look for people to affirm us. We avoid people who make us feel worse about ourselves. We respond badly to criticism. We feel threatened by those we think are better than us. Everyone else becomes an audience we're hoping to impress. We look across and down around us rather than up. But Paul here, instead, urges us to look upwards. We orientate ourselves to that unbreakable, secure relationship which we have in Christ because of the resurrection. 
So back to verse 1 again, chapter 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Literally, Paul means keep on seeking those things above. That doesn't mean that we should sit around idly speculating about heaven, you know, the sort of questions. Will there be football in heaven? Will there be bunny rabbits? Uh, Will the pavements really be paved in gold? In which case, isn't that rather poor taste? Well, we should just know that in heaven, things above is where Christ is. That's all we need to know. Christ is there, seated at the right hand of God's. And because we've been raised by faith in that very real, although spiritual sense, we are also seated there with Christ. Which means that we no longer have a life of our own. Not a private life of our own. The desires of our heart must be reorientated towards Christ. Our interests must be the interest of Christ in heaven, if you like. Paul repeats the phrase in verse 2. But this time he, say, uh, he, he, this time he says, keep on seeking with your minds. In other words, don't let your ambitions be earthbound. Look at the things from your new vantage point from above, the vantage point of Christ. You need to feel what Christ feels, long for what Christ longs for, grieve over what Christ grieves for, and act as Christ would act. And sometimes people say that Christians are too heavenly-minded to be of earthly use, don't they? What a useless saying that is. I mean... Very rarely do you actually meet a Christian who is too heavenly-minded to be of earthly use. All too often Christians aren't, simply aren't heavenly-minded at all. Sometimes our hearts are too set on uh, the FTSE 100 index or um, on, on seeking status and promotion or, or who's going to win the X factor to be uh, heavenly-minded. We uh, set our minds on these things instead. But when you do meet people who are heavenly-minded, and I know a few, they're more valuable than gold, aren't they, here on earth? Just imagine if all of us were so secure in this relationship with Christ that we could serve other people without looking for their affirmation, that we could be with and embrace people, no matter how unlovable they might be, that we could listen to and accept criticism, that we could rejoice in other people's gifts and abilities, and treat everyone as individuals whom we can truly love. That's the positive side, if you like. There is a negative side, yes. Paul tells us very clearly. He says in verse 2, we mustn't dwell on earthly things. We should set our minds away from that. And in verse 5, we must put to death whatever is earthly. In verse 5, there is truly a gritty, uh, sort of a conscious decision-orientated turning away from that list Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed. Sleeping with your boyfriend, girlfriend. Watching the wrong type of television or internet. Daydreaming about sex with people other than your wife or husband. Getting caught up in the office banter. Holding on to your money because you want something more than you want to help others. Or you want more than you want to be generous. And then there's the stuff in verse 8, a little bit further down the page. Anger, rage, malice. Slander and filthy language, lies, verse 9. So there is a putting away of that. But all of that comes second. First of all, we must set our hearts and minds on that unbreakable resurrection relationship that we have with Christ. It's not about rules. It's not about whether I allow myself to watch that Certificate 18 film or not. It's not about 
watching a particular, watching a particular, it's actually about watching, whether watching that film is going to lead us closer to Christ or not. Some of those might, some of those might not, depending on what you and what your personality is like. It's not about how much money we have in the bank. It's about what we do with that money and whether that will bring us closer to Christ or not. And it's no easy option, is it? It's gritty and disorientating and challenging all at the same time as we struggle to live out our heavenly desires and thoughts in our earthly context. But the starting point, I believe, is that relationship with Christ, that union with Christ. And the power of the Spirit as he fills, as he fills our lives by faith. And the rewards are just amazing, aren't they? And they work through all of our relationships if we can grasp hold of this spirit-filled relationship by faith with Christ. If you just follow chapter 3 down, you'll see that. There's five things here which our resurrection relationship will affect. Firstly, we find the power to live a holy life, verses 5 to 11. We find the power for united, forgiving Christian congregation in verses 12 to 14, a wonderful united church. Verses 18 to 21, we find uh, the power for a happy Christian home. Verses 22 uh, through to uh, 4, uh, verse 1. We find a healthy work situation that brings glory to God. And chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, we find power to be an effective witness to the outsider. And all because we're not following rules and regulations we're following our relationship with Christ. We are raised with him, we died with him, and we'll be raised again in glory. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and thank you for your resurrection life. We thank you that by uh, the resurrection of Christ, you you showed that his work was done, that there was no more sin to pay for. Uh, Nobody's sin crept outside of that action of Christ's, not our sin or anybody else's sin. All of it was covered by his death on the cross. Lord, we thank you that you also uh, raised us, showing that our sin has been paid for. We're no longer sinners in your sight. We We are free, we are innocent. We are declared righteous. Lord, we praise you for that. Lord, we want to live our lives knowing that we are intimately bound up in intimate union, in intimate relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to remember that we have been raised, that we have died to our old self, and that one day in the future we will be raised to glory with you. And that relationship will be made obvious and plain for everybody to to see and to know. Lord, help us as we seek to work out our holiness in our everyday lives. Grant us the power of your spirit that we may uh, just rejoice each day in becoming a little bit more like your son. In, the name of, in his name, amen.